Yes, cross. Oh, okay. Okay. Notice it's the final prayer. May my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplications come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise. For you teach me your decrees. My may my tongue sing of your word. For all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, and your law is my delight. Mm. Let me live, that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not gotten my Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. All right, today we are going to be in, we'll get to it in a minute, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12, when we get started. But uh, let's see here. I, you know, I know I've got prayer requests that I have written down, but I didn't bring anything because it has been just such a busy day. It's been so busy. I got here late, it, late for me, and uh, uh, it, it, the whole day, it's just been nonstop. So what we'll do instead of uh, giving individual prayer requests, we'll just go first to uh, this day in history. Today is 31 January, last day of January. A man of peace died in peace. Born in 1496 in the small village of Wittmarsen in the Dutch province of Friesland, Menno Simmons grew up tending cattle on his father's dairy farm. At 28, he was ordained to the Roman Catholic priesthood and appointed to a parish near his home. He quickly settled into a routine that included saying mass, baptizing newborns, playing cards, and drinking with his fellow priests. As he went about his days, Simon's active mind was entertaining doubts concerning certain tenets of the Catholic faith. He had been reading Luther and was influenced by the region's strong anti-Catholic movement. At first, doubts centered on the Mass and whether bread and wine became the actual body and blood of Christ. This was a serious issue for a priest and not one easily ignored. His personal questions led him to an intense study of Scripture and the conclusion that the teachings of the church were wrong. You think? Yet, you know, he took the time to actually read the Bible. That's oh. that's the surprising thing there. It took a lot of effort back then. I'm telling you. Yet he remained a Catholic priest. It was a comfortable living. It paid the bills. Then trouble, troubling news reached his ears. A man in a nearby town had been executed for adhering to an unusual new doctrine, rebaptism. <laughs> It sounded strange to me. That's probably John Huss, if they're going to name it. But anyway, wrote uh, Menno to hear of a second baptism. The death of this Anabaptist rebaptizer drove Menno to a renewed search of the scriptures. He could find no mention of infant baptism, and he became more and more convinced that believer's baptism was instead the true Christian model for baptism. Since he remained a Catholic, it was safe. It was secure. But then Memo Menno's peace was shattered. Members of his own congregation, his brother Peter, among them staged a militant Anabaptist occupation of a local cloister and were <clears throat> captured and massacred by the authorities. 
Menno's soul was crushed. He realized that in his role as a spiritual leader, he might have been able to discourage the group's violent enterprise. Had he been a good shepherd, he could have led them into peaceful pastures instead of stony graves. The blood of these people, although misled, fell so hot upon my heart that I could not stand it nor find rest in my soul. He wrote, he repented of his apathy and all his sins, begging God for grace and a clean heart. He prayed for the wisdom, spirit, and courage to preach his exalted, adorable name and holy word in purity and make known his truth to his glory. Menno Simmons was reborn. As he began to preach the Bible from the pulpit and to those he met, Menno's life became increasingly at risk. In 1536, he quietly renounced his priesthood, was rebaptized, and began an itinerant career of radical biblical reform that lasted until his death. During that time, he rose to a place of reverend pastoral and apostolic influence within the Anabaptist movement. His tireless traveling, his writing, and his spirit of moderation helped unite various Anabaptist groups into one distinctive Christian body. As neither Catholic nor identifiably Protestant, the Mennonites, as Simmons' followers came to be called, maintain a view of the church as pure bride for Christ, untainted by earthly political allegiance, believing that Jesus called Christians to forsake the sword for the word of God. They refused to accept secular offices or join an army. As such, authorities everywhere, both civil and religious, viewed them as traitorous and seditious. Many were martyred for their faithfulness to their understanding of the words and example of Jesus Christ. But Menno Simmons, a man of peace in a world of war, eluded capture to the end and died in his own bed, January 31st, 1561. To what degree do you agree with Menno Simmons' conclusions regarding baptism for believers only and pacifism? What do you feel are the best arguments for or against these convictions? If you had lived in the 1550s and 1560s, do you think you would have followed the teaching of Menno Simmons? Why or why not? Well, if you only have one Bible in town, probably not because people don't know it and you do what you're told. But he had a Bible. He read it. and Thank goodness for that. Um, he's obviously got some errors in his theology, especially the pacifism, but such is life. And uh, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Matthew 3, 9. I want so, to know where he parked his tricycle. Yeah, where did he park his tricycle? And does anybody here know why they don't have mustaches, the Mennonites? Come on now, you've been down there a million times. They have a beard and no mustache. And, yeah, Mennonites and uh, Amish. Nobody here knows why? No, why? Okay, let's get into the study. It's because in the Civil War, they don't even know this now. They've forgotten why they, they shaved them off. In the Civil War, all of the sergeants and officers had mustaches, even if they didn't have a beard. And they said they did not want to be identified with these people. What did you say? So they don't even know why. And they don't. You expect us to? Well, anyway, that's why. They shaved off their mustache and they've had it that way ever since. So there you go. Excuse me, ma'am. You're excused from this congregation. Most of them don't know why. I'm yeah, sure a few of them do. I don't, yeah, well, yeah, but most of them don't. If you ask them, you say, why do you? They say, I have no idea. I just, our family doesn't do it. Okay. Yeah. But many, many times I've asked that question and they've never come to uh, answer properly. So there you go. But that's why. It's to show pacifism. All right. We're in. Uh, oh, we got to pray. We do. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to gather here to meet, to share in your word, to learn about uh, people of the past and uh, where their theology was right and where it was deficient. And 
we would pray that our theology would not be deficient on things such as baptisms and uh, the taking of the Lord's Supper and the other things that we are expected to do because you have said for us to do those two things, those two ordinances. So we would pray that we would at least have a right approach in following them. And uh, Lord, we also uh, would ask that uh, you would give us clarity of thought and, uh, and the rest of our doctrine so that we wouldn't stray. And Lord, there are certainly people that are having difficult times right now, and we would want to lift them up. I had a conversation with a, my friend Scott today, and he and his family were having some difficulties. I'd like to add them into the prayers, and uh, certainly Ron and his wife, who uh, are going through their trouble with her uh, bulging discs and after an accident. And Lord, my mind is blank from there on out. So please forgive me, the people that have asked for prayer, and uh, Mark Bachman, his father is doing better. We thank you for that as well. Lord, and anybody else I'm forgetting, we would just uh, pray for these people and uh, ask that you be with them and, and have your hand of healing upon them if it's your will, and if not, your hand of grace in their sickness. Lord, we pray these things, that you will be glorified and that they will be built up, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. I, I saw that the uh, walls work. Said, are you not having... Uh hypothermia you're in a house walls work i have no idea they're freezing to death oh absolutely you know it showed that girl that went out 14 years old and froze Froze to death death. several people yeah yeah it's like 20 people have frozen to death yeah walls work no doubt about it 44 where my brother lives 44 people oh 44 below wow see i'm glad to be down here okay 312 okay 310 by the great by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each of you should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Okay, he read two verses, so it's going to take us a while to get through them, but that's okay. Um, 312, it's a little bit less than what he just read. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw. And um, it's funny, my friend emailed me just today. Just today, he asked, you know, if we're forgiven of our sins why are we being judged when we go up before the lord and i said because it has nothing to do with our sins i said our sins are forgiven when we come to christ and after we come to christ we are no longer imputed sins 2 corinthians 5 verse 19 that was our test question on sunday and eventually somebody got it but 2 corinthians 5 19 you are no longer christ is not counting men's sins against them is how some translations state it Okay, so your sins are forgiven, you are no longer imputed sin, and therefore you are not being judged for sin when you go and stand before the Lord. But you will be judged. What is it for? Verse 15. That's right. It's it, Verse 15 will reveal it, but it's for rewards and losses. That is what it is for. And Paul is setting that up right now. We're not getting to 15 yet. He tried that last <laughs> week. But we are uh, uh, getting set up for understanding that first by saying what he just said. So here we go. Paul has been, I wonder if my friend watches the Bible studies. I don't know. I know he reads the Hebrew study every single day. He never misses that. He always comments on it on the Superior Word website. And uh, he, I'm sure he watches the uh, 
I know he watches prophecy updates, probably the sermons, but I don't know if he watches the Bible study. So if, if so, I'll get an email from him saying, ah, you mentioned me. Okay, here we go. Paul has been speaking of his laying the foundation at Corinth, the foundation which is Jesus Christ. In time, others like Apollos had or would come to build upon that message he proclaimed. It is to their work that Paul now directs his attention. He begins with, now if anyone builds on this foundation, Christ is the foundation. Later, you're going to hear that the prophets and the apostles are the foundation. Any contradiction there? Because he's the chief cornerstone. He's okay, but, but he says here that Christ is the foundation. And a little later, he's going to say, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, he says that the prophets and apostles are the foundation. Is there a contradiction? No, no contradiction. Why? Because the prophets and the apostles proclaim Christ. Christ. When he's saying prophets and apostles, he's not saying they are the foundation. He's saying what they have submitted is the foundation, which is Christ. And then Christ is also the cornerstone. And guess what? He's also the capstone. And he's our all in all. He's everything. Okay? He is the purpose for our existence. Okay? Anyway, I just want to let you know that there's no contradiction there. And if somebody says, because I had somebody actually that came to the Grace Baptist uh, Bible Studies, and he was in a cult. And he talked about the foundation is the prophets and the apostles, and he was equating himself with one of those. And I said, no, the foundation is Christ. And he said, well, where does it say that? I says it right in Paul's hand. What the prophets and apostles are speaking of is Christ. He says it in um, John 5, what, at 29 or 39, he says that the word testifies of me. And then later he says that you, speaking to the apostles, will testify of me. So it's both hands, prophets and apostles, speaking of the same subject, which is a capital S, Christ. Okay, so in time, others like Apollos had or would come to build upon that message he proclaimed. It is to their work that Paul now directs his attention. He begins with, now if anyone builds on this foundation, again, the foundation is Christ. In time, teachers will come and present their words and doctrine concerning Christ. Some will be well-trained, some will be not so well-trained. Some may be opportunists, as it says in Philippians 1, verse 15. Let's go there really quickly, just so we can see what an opportunist is and why Paul doesn't really care about that. Philippians 1, and we're going to go to 15, and he says there, I'll, yeah, I'll go back to uh, 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has be become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and uh, even from envy and strife and some also from good will. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add to my chains but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then, he asks? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So he didn't really care. As long as somebody was properly preaching Christ, he didn't care what the reason was. Now, when he, they're improperly preaching Christ, Paul was all over that. I mean, that's all of his epistles. Almost every word of every epistle is a form of doctrine, either telling what to do or telling what not to do, what you have been doing wrong. And his epistles will address specific heresies which had already started to arise in the church. So there you go. Um, 
Some may be so far out in left field that they completely botched their presentation of Christ. However, all are building on this foundation. This implies that they are true believers and not heretics proclaiming a false gospel. They are building on the foundation, which is Christ. I was, I think I may have mentioned it last week. There's uh, this teaching out there that uh, the Jews of the, the letter of Revelation 1 through 3 uh, is written to the Jews, not to the church. And then um, the uh, epistles to Paul are all that we go by. And this brings in basically a contradiction because it's saying that the Jews are saved differently than the Gentiles. And that is untrue. There is one church. There are not two churches. And so that would be, and I told this person, this is a heresy that you were expounding because there is one gospel. There is one way to be saved. There are different intents for different epistles and different people are being directed to, but there is one church when it comes down to it. All right. There are not two churches. There are not two ways of being saved. Christ isn't doing two separate things, all right? He's doing one thing, and Israel is currently out. He's got a new covenant. We are under the new covenant. Israel isn't. Israel will be under the new covenant. It's still the new covenant, one covenant. Okay, so um, they're true believers. With this in mind, Paul gives six possibilities for their proclamation. In successive order, he begins with the most precious and enduring and ends with the least. In each, there is a quality that will be measured by a trial. This trial will be seen in the verses ahead. How that quality stands up to the trial is what his words are directed to. But until we arrive there, we can discern a few things about what has been presented. As we look at their qualities, think of them as a sermon, a teaching on doctrine, okay? Or the work of someone within the church, even the person in the pew who simply shares the simple gospel, okay? One, the first are two medals. They are strong and enduring. They will stand up to heat, constant use, time, the elements, quality tests, molding for specific occasions, and so on. You can do all of that with metal, right? Read it again. They're strong and enduring. They'll stand up to heat, no problem. Constant use, you can use a fork. You don't just buy a fork, use it one time and throw away, right? You go up to the door and you turn the knob. You don't take it off and throw it away and put on a new knob. They last a long time, okay? Uh, the, they stand up to the elements, they stand up to quality tests. You put a, you know, a quality test on pure gold and it will pass that test, okay? They can be molded for specific occasions and so on. They serve multiple purposes. They're beautiful and are treasured by those who own them and those who use them. I treasure this not because it's gold, but because it represents the marriage that I have with my wife of 34 years, okay? But it is beautiful. It's If you look at it, it's shiny and it's been that way now for 34 years. So they have certain purposes and they have value. They are more uncommon than any of the other following things. It usually takes much effort to obtain them as they are hidden in the ground or otherwise in hard to access places. I will stop there because it's uh, worth saying that if you've never mined gold, anybody here mined gold? You know I have. I spent a summer, I, I quit my job, I ran the wastewater plant up here uh, in Gulfgate, which is now gone, but uh, the Sarasota County bought it out, and I didn't want to work for the government ever again, so I quit my job, and I went up to Alaska, and I mined gold for a summer. Found two pounds. So um, anyway, while I was up there, the claim owner got one pound, I got one pound, I wrote my kid's name on it, it's in a safety box, and if I die, they can have it. It was just something I wanted to do. It was very cold. You had to wear a wetsuit. 
we worked underwater all day long. You uh, had what's called a dredge, and I had my own individual five-inch dredge, and you have a Tecumseh, uh, basically a, a lawnmower engine on top of this thing, and it's got a tube that goes down into the ground. It creates a suction, and then that suction picks up everything up to a five-inch tube, okay? From there, it has at the top of it, it makes a venturi, and you tap into that, and you can take the water off of the, the, the um, water that's coming in, that's going through the dredge, you take the, um, you tap into it. And what we did is we took hoses and we went around and we wrapped copper tubing around the exhaust on the uh, engine, okay? And that got the water that's being sucked up through there very hot. And then another tube that came and went down into our wetsuit, we'd shove it down there. We had hot water all day long as we were working underwater. In addition to that, on the front of the, the uh, motor, we put, air compressors. So you've got one motor that's giving you hot water, it's causing suction, and you also have an air compressor going like this constantly, and the air compressor would send air down into your mouth so you could breathe without tanks on your back. So one little motor, as long as there was gas in that tank, you could work. And when the gas ran out, then your air would stop and you'd have to come up to the top of the river very quickly. So that's what you're doing. You're down there working, and I want you to understand how hard it is to get this so you understand the preciousness of the, the metal. You have a river, okay? The river is going this way, okay? I was on the 40-mile river in the middle of nowhere, thousands of miles from anything, okay? And actually not thousands of miles from everything, but there's thousands of miles around us, square miles. We were probably, uh, I don't know, 27 miles down the river from the nearest human being, and then it was a four-hour drive to the nearest town of nine people. So it was a long way away, but... Um, you're down there working, and what you would do is you would take all the big rocks that you couldn't suck up with your, your dredge, and you would have to push them out of the way by hand. And then anything that was five inches, you would just suck it up, and it would go right through. It would take this one little motor, would take those rocks and spit them out the back like you couldn't believe. Big boulders, this big, just right off the back. And it would suck up. You get all the big rocks out of the way. That's called overburden. And then under there, you've got the gravel, the smaller rocks. And it would suck that up, and it would just spit them out. And then you would go down even further and you'd get to the sand, all right? And it would take that sand and it would just right out the back, okay? So it just, it's making a big pile behind your dredge underwater behind you, okay? And then you would get down to the very heaviest stuff on the bedrock and you would suck that stuff up. And there might be some gold flakes in there, but it took you a long time to get down to there. And then from there, there was also a lot of heavier metals. You might get a little bit of uh, plut platinum, and you might get some, uh, um, you know, iron oxides. And if there were any musket balls from the 1800s, you'd suck them up, all kinds of, and all of that was heavy enough where it wouldn't get sent off the back. It would fill up the back of the dredge. Okay, so the dredge is capturing this heavy stuff. And most of that stuff, except for the lead, most of the uh, iron and the, it would be towards the back of this bed on the back of the, so it's being pushed very quickly. Any flake of gold, I don't care how small it was, it could be teeny. Now think, this is a boulder this big that's been thrown way out the back of the dredge. A flake of gold this big would land right at the beginning of that carpet where you caught this stuff because it has a very high specific gravity, okay? Then what you would do, that's the hard work, you think. Well, now you've got, you've got down to the bedrock, and bedrock is cracked. It's cracked like this, and what you have to do is you've got to get down into the cracks in the bedrock. And the only way to do that is to, the river's going this way, so you would get your back to the bedrock and you get out these big 
uh, metal pry bars, thank you, and you would, I, you, you're working alone too, you're not working with anybody else, it's just you, you would have to pry this out, and you would have, as big as that pulpit, pieces of rock in the bedrock that you had to get out, and it's been there since God created the world, and so it, it would crack from the cold, and eventually the very heaviest stuff would get down on the side of that those cracks, okay, and you've got to get that rock out of there, and there's clay holding it in. So you're working, and while you're working, it's sucking against you because the clay is not wanting to let go. If you've ever tried to pull something out of clay, it's very hard, okay? But you slowly do this, and the clay will start pushing. You know, the, the, the river will be doing this. All the river's going that way, and you're working with the water to your back, standing on the, the bottom, water's up above your head, and finally this big old boulder will start to come up, and you grab a rock and shove it in there so it doesn't fall back in, and then you shove another rock, and eventually you get this big, giant thing, as big as that pulpit, knocked over. And if it fell on you, you would die. That would be the end of you. You'd be down there, your air would run out, and you'd be done. But out goes this big rock, and then that is where the reward is. Think of all the work just to get down into there. We would then suck up everything on the bottom, and you would see gold laying there. But it looked um, kind of like um, copper because it's very tannic water. Okay, so it didn't look like gold, it looked like copper, and you eventually knew exactly what you were looking at, and it would just be laying there. And it was beautiful to see, just little specks of it, ever, and you'd suck it all up thinking, I hope it doesn't go out. You'll you lose all that work. I tell you what, that not one thing of gold would be four riffles back. It would be in the first and second riffle. And that shows you the, the specific gravity of gold, how heavy it is. And like I said, the lead would be up there as well. Everything else would be towards the back of it. And there'd be some sand in there and stuff. And then that's just the beginning. Because now that you've got that done, you've got a whole, you might work out there eight or ten hours. Now you've got another five or six hours of cleaning the gold. And you've got to do that every single day. And so it was, you worked very hard all day and well into the night, but there was no night. And so you just worked until you got exhausted. And you, then you went to bed for a couple hours and started again. And I did that for an entire summer. Most people that would come out, they'd say, oh, I'm going to go mine gold. They would be there for two or three days, and they would leave. I'm the only guy that lasted the whole summer. Everybody else was, they thought, we're going to come here, we're going to be rich, and we're it doesn't work that way. But the point is that it's a lot of work to get a little, little bit of gold, okay? Now, before I go on, because it's an interesting story, guess how they used to do it before they had dredges? These guys used to go there in the coldest of winter, and they would start hacking the frozen river until they got all the way down through the water. And then they had to do this in 40 below, whatever temperature like it is here. And the way that they got the gold out, they didn't have a, a, a dredge. They had to use mercury. And they'd run mercury down into those cracks after they got that big rock out of there. And it would mercury is magnetic to gold. It's just like taking a, a magnet to iron. It just sucks it up. And then they'd have to separate the mercury from the gold. And guess what? They'd go crazy. Yeah, because they'd be inside thinking, I'm going to do And a lot of people went crazy because they didn't know. But that's the case. And we found mercury from back in the 1920s, 30s, whatever, whenever they were doing this in there. And we had to separate it, but we knew how to do it now. But there you go. Very, very difficult work to get a very small amount. Like I said, it sounds like a lot, two pounds. A whole summer, you find two pounds of gold. and. I, whatever gold is worth, I have no idea. But like I said, the claim owner got a pound, and I got a pound. And so my kids will get it someday, if, you know, whatever. The smart but, move is to be a claim owner. Be the claim owner, that's right. And that's then you can have somebody else do the work for you. They do it all the time. There's, there's always people that want to go out there. That's enough of that, because I know I took, talked a long time, but the point is the gold. 
Okay, next time we'll do a lesson on silver mining, which I did. And, no, I'm kidding. Anyway, uh, okay, so that's gold. Precious, okay, they must be refined. The first part of that process is, as I said, you've got um, to first get the gold out of the ground, and then you bring in these very, very heavy buckets because it's all of the very heaviest stuff. You had to carry it up onto the shore, and then you had to carry it up the hill to where you were staying, and you had to spend the rest of the night getting all that sand and all the heavy non-gold metals out of there. It's, it has to be refined, and then from there, if you want the gold, there are different grades of gold. You've got little flakes, you've got bigger flakes, and we have a sieve that would separate them. And so I've got a, a thing full of gold dust and one of small flakes, middle flakes, and then large flakes. And then we have one more that has quartz in with the gold. And if you want that gold, you have to separate that from the quartz as well. But most people don't do that. Why would they not take out the quartz? There are big pieces like this with gold running all through it. That's precious. Jewelry. I'm telling you, people will spend a lot of money. I got the two most beautiful things, one for my wife and one for my daughter. I guarantee you my daughter has lost hers. I guarantee you. All that work for that beautiful, beautiful thing. I know it's gone, but my wife, I'm sure she has hers. You know Ask that? her about it. I know my daughter. Anyway, um, so it's got to be refined in order to remove impurities. And the refining process continue to improve them until the metal is the finest quality of all. When you see silver out of the U.S. Mint or out of the gold out of the U.S. Mint, it will always say 99.99% pure. They, they will not claim that it's 100% pure because there's always going to be something in there. But they can make it that way. When they are so refined, they reflect back the beauty of the beholder perfectly. That's why when it says silver refined seven times, it's the Lord He's refining that, and it's a picture of he's refining you to the point where he can look at you and see himself. That's the lesson that we learn with the purified metals is he's refining us to become like him so that he only sees himself. He doesn't see us, okay? That's the idea you're getting there, okay? Second, the third, precious stones are beautiful. They stand up to heat. They often become more lustrous through constant use, polishing them, or they can be marred and chipped through overuse. They can withstand the elements very well. They cannot be molded, but are fixed in their makeup. You see, it's a little less than the precious metals because there's disadvantages to them. Depending on what stone, they may be suited to multi-purposes, but not all are. They are treasured by those who possess them and are a delight to the eyes of those who see them. Depending on the type of stone, it may be difficult to find or it may be easy to remove from an outcropping of such stones and surrounding material. Just depends on the stone. We know that diamonds are made under great weight and pressure, and so they're deeper in the earth, right? But you can actually walk along in some places in the world to this day and pick up a stone and say, oh my gosh, this is a diamond, because they are also, they've been ejected out of volcanoes or whatever. <laughs> they're up there. And, you know, you hear about somebody in Australia walking along, he picks up a piece of gold this big. Okay, it, it happens from time to time. That's like a one in a billion chance. Most gold does not come in that state at all. It takes a lot of work. It takes tons and tons and tons and tons of material for a single ounce of gold. To find a nugget of gold that weighs an ounce is like finding a whole summer worth of work sometimes. It's very hard work. But it does happen. If you find something like that, you want to consider yourself blessed. Okay. They're treasured by those who possess them and are a delight to the eyes of those who see them. I've said this, but I'm saying it again. Depending on the type of stone, it may be difficult to find or it may be easy to remove from an outcropping of such stones and surrounding material. They do not need to be refined as much 
as they need to be shaped and polished for maximum luster. When they are so polished, they will often radiate the glory of light through them in a dazzling array of colors. If you want to know about diamonds, go online and read about the different qualities and why they're rated differently. Very interesting. Take you 20 minutes to read up and you'll know why some diamonds that are the same size as others aren't worth nearly as much. They have occlusions in them. They have, you know, faults in the, uh, the way they were cut, whatever. They're not as valuable, okay? But the fourth, this is point number three, but the fourth is wood is a more common one than the first three. We know that. There's wood pretty much everywhere. But there are many types of wood, and some are rarer than others. Each wood is suitable for different uses. They will not stand up to high heat well. If your works here on this earth are wood, guess what? You've got a problem, all right? But some can stand up to the elements better than others. They can be cut and formed into an unlimited number of shapes. They can be left coarse or polished to an immensely high luster. With a protective coating, they can shine like precious stones. Most woods are easy to obtain and work with. They can be plain to the eye, radiantly adorned with knots or grain, or they can be astonishingly beautiful in natural color with even a little grain being noticed. Other than the wood itself, much of what it entails when adding into a building is of human effort and shaping. In the end, very few woods last for many ages, but eventually degrade over time. Okay, so think of your works. This is what you're supposed to be thinking about right now. Am I giving precious metals? Am I giving precious gems? Am I giving wood? The last two, this is point number four, are actually, hay and straw, are actually used as building materials. But they are temporary, and they will not stand up to excessive heat. Instead, they will quickly burn up. The elements will degrade them. They can be easily molded into shapes, even twisted into an unnatural way in order to be used. And in and of themselves, they don't really leave anything to stir either the imagination or pleasure to the eye. But if twisted and contorted, they can be woven into marvelously beautiful patterns which direct our attention towards them. Such patterns, though, are only the result of man's efforts and were not inherently a part of their makeup. Other than very limited and often showy temporary uses, they are not good for building on a solid foundation. Everybody see what Paul is doing here? He's telling us the different things that we can do with our lives. We want to make something showy. We want to take something that's cheap and make it showy but beautiful and please people. Guess what? You're probably not going to get a reward for that. It's going to be burned up. Life application. In evaluating the elements described above, remember that the qualities of them are being used by Paul in a metaphorical way to describe what we as servants of the Lord either add to the foundation or enjoy once they are added to the foundation. Everything that we do for the Lord or enjoy concerning the Lord, such as a particular form of worship or a type of sermon, is considered an addition to the foundation. But every addition will be tested for value and endurance. So let us add wisely. I had somebody today email me that they tried a church in their town, and I, I'm sorry, they didn't email, I talked to them on the phone, and they said that uh, uh, the sermon was just, it was just, fluff. yeah, fluff, okay, and so, you know, that's, that's, that person that gave that fluff sermon will get his reward based on a fluff sermon. He may be the greatest pastor in the world and takes care of his congregation better than anybody else, and he'll get rewards for that, 
but the sermon itself will probably not be worth much reward. Okay, so yeah, everybody's got skills, everybody's got gifts, and everybody has the ability to do something with what they have been given. And so we want to decide where is our most important time and energy spent, okay? Verse 313, go ahead, read okay, it again. I will, and uh, I will ask you why is day Okay, well, that's translator's preference because in the Hebrew and Greek, they do not have capitalization or punctuation, okay? Hebrew is a consonant language. It's just uh, consonants, and then there's no punctuation. And the only time when you look at Hebrew and it's got little dots all around it, that is not a part of the original Hebrew. That is a, a grammar tool for, to help people understand pronunciation, etc. There, You know, how the sentence should be formed. But if you go to a regular Hebrew book where somebody knows how to read Hebrew, it won't have any of those dots or dashes or points or anything. It'll just be just the consonants and then all of the sounds that you make with the consonants are understood. Okay, you just know what to say and when to say it. But um, that's how the language works. In the Greek, there are two styles of writing. There's what's known as minuscule. It's all small letters, and all they do is just write. It's just like cursive. It's just all written together. Sometimes there are no breaks between words, nothing. And then you've got what's called majuscule. That's large letters, and they just write everything in large letters, okay? But they don't have large and small in the ancient Greek. It's all just the same size. So day in your Bible, which is also in this Bible, is there for translator's preference. They are highlighting the fact that it says day. And there's a reason why they would do that. Go ahead. Okay. His work will be shown for what it is, both the day the will day. bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each man's work. Okay. Um, a little bit different here. It says will be revealed by fire. Okay. And then it adds in what sort of work it is or what sort it is. Okay, so um, the reason why they highlighted day, maybe I gave my commentary, and if I didn't, then uh, we can talk about it. Okay, Paul is now speaking of anyone who builds on the foundation, which is Christ. Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Therefore, as noted in the preceding verse, he is speaking of saved believers, regardless of the soundness of their work. They're saved believers. Having noted six different metaphors concerning their work, he now says that each one's work will become clear. Those people who teach incorrectly will be shown where their faults were, okay? Those who taught what is right and in accord with sound doctrine will likewise be so informed. And I would venture to say that there will not be a single person that ever stands up before the Lord and is given an A-plus in all of their doctrine. We're all going to be deficient in their doctrine in some place or another. Some people are just going to get an F-minus and told to move on. All right, a great example of what Paul is speaking of today is how modern Israel is perceived. Okay, you see this especially on debates on Facebook all the time. The doctrine of dispensationalism teaches that despite being out of God's favor due to their rejection of Christ, Israel's time of punishment will end and Christ will return to Israel after the tribulation period refines them. Okay, if you don't agree with that, that's fine. But in this church, I teach dispensationalism. That is what the Bible teaches. If you go back to Leviticus 26 and watch the third sermon, I'd rather have you watch all three so you know what's going on. You watch the third sermon in Leviticus 26, you can come to no other conclusion because he doesn't reference just one covenant. He references both covenants. And he speaks about the end in regards to that. Every type and picture that you see in the Old Testament is always going to reveal, if it's speaking about what's going on in all of redemptive history, it will always reveal the dispensational model. 
the life of Jacob, when he left Bethel, which is, anybody know what Bethel means? Bethel. House. house of God. Bethel. He left the house of God. He went all the way up to Padanaram. He had wives. He had uh, children. All of the children were named specifically. After that, he went down and he stopped in Gilgal after he was being, uh, um, uh, no, I'm sorry, not Gilgal. Um, anyway, um, Galal. It's leaving my mind right now. But anyway, Laban met him there. They called the place Jagarsa, Huthah, and Aramaic, and um, uh, Mizpah, I think. Or it's also Mizpah. There's another name. Anyway, okay, so they named it there. And then from there, he went down and he crossed the Jabbok. He, his brother was coming, Esau. He sent these flocks onto him. It says, he's coming. He's coming. Each one of the servants said he's coming. And guess what? He uses the term mel, um, Malach, which is a angel. It can also mean be a human being. But he's the Lord is specifically saying that somebody is coming. He's showing you the dispensational model. And then he goes down to Sukkot. Okay. And then he finally goes back to Bethel. And, you know, all of the travels go, it shows you the dispensational model. Go watch those sermons. I'm not doing it very well because I just thought of that right now. And it's been five years since I preached on this. But if you follow the life of Jacob, it is absolutely clear, the dispensational model, and even the things that are being sent to Esau, gifts to Esau. Esau is a picture of Adam, fallen man, okay? Jacob is a picture of Christ, and he is sending gifts. What are they? The seven dispensations of time he's sending to him as a gift in understanding what God is doing in redemptive history. And we come now to the number sermon and we're seeing the exact same thing again. We're seeing the dispensational model with the spies being rejecting Canaan. They're going to be rejected. They're going to be under punishment. Watch, listen to this week's sermon and you will understand that. The dispensational model is saying that Israel is not out. They are under God's punishment. They will be punished. They will be made right again. This week's sermon is literally, even though it's not the end of the um, chapter, it is the culmination, literally the culmination of what God is doing. You wait and, and I hope that you'll understand what's going on because I know last week's sermon might have been a little difficult and the one before that, but each one is building up to a point. And this week's sermon is building up to a specific point about what God is doing and why he's doing it with Israel. Okay, so we'll go on. Dispensationalism says that they're out of favor. Okay, from Jerusalem, let me read that again. The rejection of Christ, Israel's time of punishment will end. Christ will return to Israel after the tribulation period refines them. From Jerusalem and in the midst of his people, Israel, he will reign for a thousand years. Now, you could, I'd say it right here. I don't need to go on. Reformed theologians, for the most part, dismiss this and believe that the church has replaced Israel. To them, I somebody on Facebook today, you know, she posted something. I posted a response, and I said, well, that's not correct. And she came back, and she said that uh, we were talking about, uh, is Israel the same thing as the church? Has the church replaced Israel? And what did she cite? She said that uh, uh, we are grafted into Israel. And I said we are grafted into the, anybody? Commonwealth. We are grafted into the spiritual commonwealth of Israel. We did not replace Israel. Israel. There's a big difference between the two. All right, I'll see what her response is and then we'll go from there. But she's entirely wrong. If she just watched the Romans uh, study, she'll see Israel is never once called the church and the church is never once called Israel ever. Okay, but Reformed theologians dismiss this. They say that the church has replaced Israel. To them, the thousand year reign of Christ mentioned in Revelation is merely symbolic of the entire church age. Not a literal time frame, but simply the number which re represents 
wholeness. Both of these cannot be right. Either dispensationalism is correct or Reformed theologians are correct or they're both wrong, but they cannot both be right. All right. Both of these cannot be right. Both sides truly believe they are correct and they find the opposing view incredible to even contemplate. In the end, proponents of both views will stand before the Lord and this, along with all their other correct or incorrect doctrine will be evaluated. At that time, the day, capital day, will reveal it. This means that when the judgment of believers for rewards and losses are handed out in that day, and that's why he capitalized it, just like he does today in the book of Hebrews, it is a specific day of God's timing and choosing. All right, the declaration for right doctrine will be proclaimed, and the declaration for the faulty will also be called out. Having said that, one of the reasons why we can know that that, uh, and I'm just going to make a diversion because it came to my mind and I obviously didn't comment on it, which I thought I'm going to wait, is it specifically says, now, if it said that there was a thousand year reign of Christ, okay, it just said that, you would say, okay, maybe they're right on this. Know what I'm talking about? You, uh, these people can have a, an opinion. It just means a fullness and that's it. And these people are wrong. And you can say, well, it's a thousand year reign of Christ. Okay. But let, let's read this together. Um, Let's see here. We're in Revelation chapter 20. I'm just going to start in verse 20, verse 1, okay? It won't take long to get through this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon. Now, they're saying that the entire church age is reflected in this thousand years. That's their view, okay? He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Is Satan bound right now? Okay, so it can't be reflective of the church age, but even if they can somehow fudge it, we'll just say they're fudging it. Thousand years. Everybody got that? And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he might, must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or the mark of his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's three times he said that. Now, has that happened any time during the church age? And we wouldn't expect that it would. So, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Well, that's obviously an error because they say it represents the whole church age. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over the, such the second death has no power and they shall be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him a thousand years and now when the oh my gosh I ran out of fingers I can't I can't do it okay Satan will be released from his prison when the Lord says something once he may be talking metaphorically when he says it twice he may have a point that he wants to metaphorically stress if he says it six times in a couple of paragraphs he means it's a thousand years. Okay, there's the point which you would call theologically ridiculous. And that's what happens when you say that that is not a literal thousand years. He said it six times to make sure that we wouldn't miss that or make that mistake. Okay, so we'll go on. Uh, let's see here. Paul says that the reason it will occur is because it will be revealed by fire. Okay, that is why we are having this judgment on our 
wood, hay, stubble, and also the precious metals and the precious stones. In Revelation 2.18, we read the same comment about the Lord. Let's see here. Revelation 2 verse 18 says, And to the angel uh, in the church of Thyatira, is it 2.18 that I want? Um, 3.18, thank you. I need to get that corrected. 3.18. Um, yes, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Okay, so there you go. It's the same general terminology that's being used there. 318. Okay, got that. The eyes like a flame of fire speak of his ability to seek out and determine all things, burning away that which is of no real value. The feet like fine brass, which Christ is described as having, speak of judgment. All right. It is at the judgment seat of Christ that the evaluation of each man's efforts will be made. He alone will determine the truth of matters such as dispensationalism by the fire, which will test each one's work as Paul says, of what sort it is. The marvelous thing about Christ's judgment is that it will be perfectly fair and it will be perfectly just. People, I had somebody ask me on Sunday here at church, we were talking about the babies that are being aborted in, in uh, New York and all over the place, okay? I mean, it's worldwide plague. But the question was, what will happen to those babies? And I have my opinion on it and other people disagree with my opinion. It doesn't matter. In the end, I told her the only thing that matters is that God will be perfectly just and he will be perfectly fair in that judgment. What I believe, I believe based on scripture, a reading of scripture. The opposing view that people come to me with always take verses out of context. I have never seen one person justify their stand with verses in context. They just take things out and they say, see, and it doesn't justify anything. It doesn't matter what I believe. Don't ask me. I'm not going to answer. I always have people come after me and threaten to kill me when I say my view, which is based on scripture. Go ahead. I just want to... Whatever. 218, 318. 218 says, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. Blazing fire. Okay, well... Like so thank you. Okay, 218. And then I read... Got you. Okay. Let me write that down because I... Uh, yeah. All right. 218. Let me... Uh, thank you. Place. All right. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, doesn't matter as far as it... In the end, God will be perfectly just. He will be perfectly fair in what he uh, uh, does as far as this judgment, okay? No soul will come before him for judgment and leave feeling as if he had received unfair treatment. Now, in the final judgment at the end of times, those people are all going to be saying, you owe me and I'm here and you you have to save me and you can't throw me. They're going to have every excuse on the planet until they stand and see the glory of God and their mouths are going to be shut when they realize how utterly despicable and I'm talking about saved believers as well. When we see the glory of God, we are going to wonder how he could have saved us. How much more people that failed to call on Christ, failed to be re redeemed by him when they knew that they had that choice and they turned it down. When they see the glory and the majesty of God, they are not going to say a word. On the way up there, maybe. But once they're there, they see the glory of God. It will not happen. They will realize that their just due is coming. All right. No soul is going to come him before judgment and leave feeling as if he had received unfair treatment. Instead, he will realize the error of his faults. When somebody gets on Facebook and they argue dogmatically, especially about incorrect doctrine, and they find out how stupid it was over some simple little thing that they, they, 
just got onto a tangent and they've beaten it to death for eight years in people's faces and they realize that they're wrong. Imagine belittling other people over something so silly. You're going to hell because you don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And you see people do this. And they're going to have to stand and take an account in front of the Lord for that type of thinking. Right. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I'm willing to defend it and I've done it many times. But I am not going to say somebody's a heretic because they believe in a mid-tribulation rapture or that the toe on the beast is blue instead of purple, whatever, okay? Have a little sense in your theology, okay? Another beautiful aspect of what is involved in this judgment is the fact that what we were given in advance, the necessary tools to determine what our judgment will be. He's already given us everything that we need in order to know what our judgment will be. It's all right here. Everything that we need to know about our judgment is right here, okay? Now, some people obviously don't have as much light. As I said, there were people back in the 1600s that didn't have their own copy of the Bible, and all they had was what the preacher told them. The things that the preacher told them that were correct, and they went out and did it, well, good, they're going to get their reward. And if the preacher told them wrong, guess what? James 3.1 steps in and takes care of that problem for him. But that person will not get rewards for what he thinks he's doing right when he's doing it wrong, Okay. The end never justifies the means, and when you do something, even with good intent, if it's the wrong end, you won't get rewards for it. God is going to be just, and you will say, oh, you know what? That was perfectly done. There's going to be no complaining by us, all right? Mining so, for gold. What's mining for gold? Absolutely. Keep mining for gold in the Bible. In the giving of the Bible, we have been handed his instruction manual for life, for doctrine, and for practice. It is up to us to rationally, fairly, and competently evaluate those doctrines which are presented and then to reject those doctrines which are faulty. In the end, we can be as right as we want or as wrong as we want. We can pray about, study, meditate on, and proclaim God's word competently, or we can trust others' findings and hope they were right. And as I said, I, I've said this a million times, and I'll say it a million more times, and I never exaggerate, um, is that I know people that have read book after book after book after book about the Bible, and they have never taken the time to read the Bible through more than one time, maybe not even once, or if they've gone through it three times in 35 years, shame on them, okay? People will cite people's analysis of the Bible all the time, having no idea the context of what they are saying, doesn't match to the Bible itself, okay? It's fine to read analysis. It's fine to read commentaries. It's fine to listen to sermons. I implore you to do all of them, but you should spend at least 10 times as much time reading your Bible than you do those other things, not the other way around, okay? Read your Bible. Know your Bible. That's why when we do a line-by-line -line analysis of the Bible, at least you're getting the Bible read to you. You get it read at the beginning of the sermon, you get it read all the way through the sermon, and then you get it a third time at the end of the sermon. So I've got you three times on every passage that we do. The last one is a little bit of a, you know, it's been amended a little for poetry, but you're still getting all of the words. It's just being, you know, done in a poetic form to help you remember it, hopefully. Anyway, we, uh, uh, of what eternal value is sitting on the computer playing games? Anybody? When I was in the Korean church and I was teaching the Sunday school for the kids there, they were planning an outing so we could all fellowship together, go down to the Naples Zoo down there, and we're all going to have a good day, worship the Lord, enjoy the time down at the Naples Zoo, etc. And one of the kids didn't come. 
he said, when I got back, I said, why didn't you come? He says, well, I spent the day on the computer. I was playing games and I, I was in, engrossed in that. And I thought, what a waste. We went down there. We had a good time together. We got to see animals. We learned all kinds of stuff. He didn't learn anything. He just wasted his entire day of his life. And he probably is still doing that to this day. Anyway, is playing computer games, watching an endless succession of television shows, or heading out to the mall day after day for shopping. And yet we pursue these things at the expense of right doctrine. Every time that we do something, it's a choice that we've made with the very little time that we have. What is, what does he say in Psalm 90? Who wrote Psalm 90? Anybody? Moses. Moses. Oldest Psalm in the Bible. He says here, uh, where does he say it first? He says, um, yesterday, let's read the whole Psalm because you're going to get the point. It, the whole Psalm basically follows the same theme. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. He's saying that you are God forever. You are eternal and you see everything that goes on. He's going to contrast us with that. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like sheep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. He's speaking about you, us humans. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. God is everlasting. We have almost no existence at all, if you put it in the perspective of even 6,000 years of human history. Verse 7, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. Somebody goes, ah, and your life is done. It's that fast in the scheme of things, okay? The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. We've got at least seven or eight people in here. Well, maybe not five. Five people in here that have already exceeded what the Lord said is a big blessing for you, okay? You are living beyond the blessing. You're, you're abundantly blessed. Think of it that way, okay? Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. I've had friends from my high school that died years ago, and every year a couple more die. Every year a couple more die. I'm 54 years old. We had 600 people in that graduating class, and how many of them are gone now? And every year some more die in one way or another. We were soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So here it is. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's it right there. Teach. That's what we're talking about in Paul right now. The brevity of life, what we do with our time. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Let me see. How much longer is it? We'll go on. We'll finish it. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Here it is one more time. 
and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. But we have to be willing to use that. We have to be willing to initiate that process and then ask the Lord to establish it. And even what we do, we do these great things and we build monuments to our existence and in a single generation, they're gone, right? Okay, I'll read that again. Of what eternal value is sitting on the computer playing games, watching an endless succession of television shows or heading out to the mall day after day for shopping? Teach us to number our days rightly. And yet we pursue these at the expense of right doctrine. Let us be prepared at our judgment, which is coming for that which lasts. Life application. How sure are you about the type of baptism? Which is correct. Are you trusting the Bible or tradition? If the Bible, are you properly evaluating baptism's symbolism and purpose? This is one of a zillion things that you will be evaluated on. Read study be approved that's just one thing that i took as an example circumcision right we know the answer because we all know what galatians says some people have never read galatians and they're told you need to be circumcised in order to please god and what does paul say if you allow yourself to be circumcised christ profits you nothing you're a debtor to the whole law it's a self-condemning act I'd so like if you started off with baptism today. baptism oh absolutely started off with baptism and here we're Got it in our life application. Every single little point of doctrine fits somewhere in God's redemptive plans for each one of us. And if we pull that string, guess what? The string is attached to a giant tapestry and it all just unravels. If you take Paul out of the Bible or if you take out Peter's epistles or any other verse that you don't like, you're pulling the tapestry and destroying what God has done for you in your life. Okay, 314. Yeah. What he has built survives. He will receive his reward. See, there you go. Well, what did he just say? We've got six things that have been presented before the Lord. We've got gold and silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Put any of that under fire and what's going to happen? These three, these three are just going to be burned up immediately. And what re remains, or actually this one may not be burned up immediately if you've got a really, really good strong wood or something that is kind of fire tolerant. But for the most part it's going to get burned up with enough heat, okay? But these three won't. This one may crack. It may crack if you put enough heat on the type of precious stone, all right? These two are not going to. They are just simply going to melt down into something, be molded into something, be purified, but they're not going to be destroyed, okay? So Paul has been speaking of the building of the church upon the foundation, which is Christ Jesus. He noted six different materials of varying quality, which one could use to continue the building process. And then he noted that whatever we use, something of value or something worthless, it will be seen for what it truly is in the end. Now he notes that if anyone's work, which he has built, endures, obviously those more valuable and lasting materials will endure while those of lesser quality will not endure. Using these metaphors, he is certainly speaking primarily of teachers, preachers, and ministers who take and build upon the foundation. However, could it not be said of the mother who sits with and instructs her children on Christ? Because she's instructing them and she is building a foundation which is on Christ. Could this same principle not be applied to the cashier behind the counter who takes the time to tell about the Lord who saved her? And could it not be applied to the electrician who speaks to his fellow workers about Jesus Christ? Could it not be applied to the window 
or the pressure washer who has his truck completely covered in Jesus from front to back. Hint, hint. Right? I mean, people, you've got something. Use it. Right? Each of these examples are people who are building upon the foundation. Their knowledge may be less than trained teachers, but it may actually be of better quality. One does not have to be a theologian to get the principal tenets of the faith right and then to properly repeat them to others. Even a person who is confined to a wheelchair and has no other ministry than posting on Facebook or doing other internet work can build upon the foundation. I know people that are on Facebook, some of them are very you know, annoying, but some of them are very uplifting and all day long they just post nice things about Jesus, all day long. Jesus, 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 okay? Some of the people post about Jesus and annoying and some people post about Jesus and politics. Everybody's got their own thing. Everybody's got their own, what is important to me, okay? No one is truly exempt from participating in the work for Christ, and each has a role that can and should be filled. As long as the words are correct and correspond to the doctrines of the Bible, it will endure. And if it endures, Paul says he will receive a reward. Christians are saved by grace through faith. It's a done deal, and it is a guarantee. What occurs after salvation is up to the individual. Those things that we do, be they many or be they few, that, that rhymed, are to be of the highest quality if they are to be rewarded. Let us therefore endeavor to hold fast to the principal tenets of the faith and thus bring glory to God. And we can do so in the hopes of reward from our gracious Lord, because he will. He said he would. His word is true. We're going to get a reward for every good thing that endures through the judgment. Life application. You are a minister of the gospel to those around you. Fulfill your commission to the best of your ability and be pleased to do it. The rewards are heavenly. Okay, I'm going to say something because it comes to mind. And some people hate this sentence. I don't know why. Some people say it maybe too often. But it is something that should be said from time to time. And it is something that uh, uh, is absolutely correct in what it says is that uh, um, use uh, preach the gospel always at all times and when necessary use words is that it yes in other words let your life be a living gospel for people to see and I've had people that have just gotten all over that and say you shouldn't say that and that is not a good thing to say listen that is exactly what we're told to do, is to live our lives as if we are living for Christ in everything we do. And yes, we should tell people about Jesus, but that does not negate our actions, okay? And I don't know why people have a problem with that. They probably heard some preacher that said, you shouldn't say that because you need to be out telling people about Jesus. Well, what do you think you're doing when you're living your life properly, okay? You may not have a chance to tell somebody about Jesus in a certain circumstance, but if they see your actions and then they see you again, and finally, they walk up to you and they say, why are you always happy? And then you can tell them about Jesus. There are just times where you can't tell everybody about, you can't just stop your work. You can't stop doing this or that, but you can act responsibly with what you do all the time. You know, I have people constantly see me at 7-Eleven. And the first time they see me, I don't know them from Adam and they don't know me from Adam. And I'm out there barefooted and this morning, 42 degrees. And I'm picking, I've got a hat on, which is kind of contradictory. It's cold and but I'm out there and I'm picking up the cigarette butts and people walk by and they must think that's a bum. Well, guess what? They work out on the key for a month building a house and every day they're there and all of a sudden they say, that guy's there again today. 
He must be crazy. And then they see me one day wiping off the garbage can. And then one time taking out the garbage. And after about five days, they say, he must work here. Right? They, they come, it dawns on him. And then they walk up one day and they say, hey, how's it going? You say, hey, doing great. You know, I don't have time to tell him about Jesus because he's walking in to buy something. And there isn't the time. But finally, one day he stops me and says, why don't you wear shoes? And I say, because I hate them. And then we get into a conversation and then I can tell them about Jesus because I'm not robbing him of his time going to work or anything. But sometimes you can just be a gospel by your actions. And guess what? I bet you those things will be rewarded by the Lord as long as your actions are glorifying of him and they ultimately lead to you telling somebody about Jesus. He's going to say you had a whole string of things that finally asked that guy curiously, why are you happy? Why aren't you, you know, whatever, okay? And what do I try to do? I, every day they got that big heavy rubber mat in front of the door where the dirt goes off so it doesn't carry it into the store. Every day I grab that and it's heavy. I mean, it's like 50 pounds and I take it and I shake it off over away from the building, okay? Before I do that, if somebody is walking in or out, I always open the door for them and then I close it. And then I put the mat down really quick, little nobody's coming out and I see somebody coming, I open the door for them. And you do that for somebody four days in a row, they eventually want to know why. You're always happy taking out that rubber mat. That's my job. Why shouldn't I be happy? And let me tell you about my other job. Okay? 315. I think that quote was St. Francis. St. Francis of Assisi. Well, that's why they don't like it. It's because a Catholic said it. Oh, my God. That's, that, that, would that would explain it. That's right. You know, it, it, people, people will find every reason in the world to not like something, even if it's true. It, it, the truth has no source fallacy. That's what you said, and that's what it is. Just because a Catholic said something. Listen, Thomas Aquinas was a Catholic. He lived in the 1300s, and he is the greatest theologian in all of Christian history on Christian philosophy. You want to get wisdom. You want to understand the philo philosophical side of Christianity. I've got it right over here. Read the Summa by Thomas Aquinas. You won't understand five words of some of his paragraphs. It is so complicated. But once you grasp what he's saying, you'll say, oh, I never would have thought that in a million years. He's a Catholic. So what? If truth is truth, that's all that, you know what truth is? Can anybody here define what truth is? What's that? Jesus. Well, Jesus is truth. He embodies truth. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Yeah. Truth is what corresponds to reality. As long as it corresponds to what is actual, that is truth. Okay? Keep it simple. All right. But you're right. Christ corresponds to reality 100% because he is the ultimate reality. Okay, 315. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. You can lose your salvation, can't you? Can you imagine that? What does it say? Read it again. Read it real loud so that the people that listen that believe you can lose your salvation can hear. Go ahead. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Okay, there you go. Add that in with the verse from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. And we'll be able to get a picture of eternal salvation apart from the explicit verses just implicit verses you can get that doctrine okay paul speaking of the quality of work which is built upon the foundation of christ gives us direct and exacting insights into what will happen when we face jesus to understand the timing one needs to understand the sequence of events concerning church age believers as the bible lays them out okay first 
We are saved at some point in our lives and sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is our guarantee of eternal life from that moment. Can anybody cite that verse without looking? It's in the book of, begins with E, ends with Ephesians. Okay, Ephesians. Chapter, anybody? Okay, and it's probably verse 13 and 14. Thank you. There you go. Good job, Burke. I knew you'd get it. Okay, so um, that's, um, yes, um, guarantee of eternal life from that moment on. We can never lose this status. If it was, there's all kinds of faults with that, which we'll talk about again. From the moment of our salvation, everything, talked about it in the last verse, we're talking about it again. Everything that we do will be a part of our judgment before Jesus. You go back over my day today, the past I got, get up at three. It happens every day. I got... My clock set for 3.45. Every single day, my eyes open at 3.44. Every day. I, every single day it happens. So 3.44, I get up. I turn off the clock with, before it rings. And then from that moment all the way to through until right now, every single thing is going to be judged by the Lord. Everything. And I got to tell you how much of today is going to get burned away. Day after day after day. Think of your own day and be honest with yourself. How much is going to be given a reward? How much is just going to be burned away? I can tell you I've got a lot of stuff being burned away just today. Okay? So, every single thing we do will be a part of our judgment before Jesus. It is our choice how we build upon the foundation. Eventually, we will die and await our call to glory. Or, or if we're those left alive at the coming of the Lord, the moment known as the rapture, we will be translated to be with him forever. After our translation from this earthly to that spiritual, we must then face our trial for the things we have done in our lives since coming to Christ. This is known as the judgment seat of Christ, and it is found in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Okay, we're going to be there very soon, so just wait a couple days and we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What? Yes, 9, 9 through 11, actually. It sets it up, but you're right. First 10. Let's go there. Seems how you said it. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 5. All right. We must all. Here it is. I, this is the verses I sent to the guy that asked that today. I sent him 2 Corinthians 3 and then 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. Therefore, if we make, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. And here's the reason why. Verse 10, what he just said. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, we've already talked about what is good and bad. We've got silver, gold, gold, silver, precious stones, and wood, hay, and stubble. So we already know what it is. He's telling us now how it's going to happen. Knowing, therefore, um, yes, whether good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but we are well known to God, and I also trust that are well known in your consciences. Okay? It's going to be one of those days where we have to stand before the Lord and we have to face up to all the things that we have done. Every single thing from the moment that we were saved until the moment that we are taken up. Everything. Okay? So, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. This is the biblical sequence of events for the saved believer. There is no such concept as purgatory as defined by the Roman Catholic, okay, the Roman Catholic Church. It is a made-up lie which was inculcated into their teachings for anybody? Well. Money, financial profit, and it's a tool to keep congregants in bondage. There is also no such thing as a loss 
of salvation as taught by those who follow the doctrine of Arminius or other such teachers. There is eternal security in the Lord, but there is the sure coming of judgment for the life we lived in him. Okay, and this judgment is explained clearly here. Remembering that Paul has already described our works as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw will help us to understand our judgment before Jesus Christ. He says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Fire merely refines or has no effect on the first three types of work. However, it will consume the last three depending on its amount of heat and the duration of it. Wood may make it through a temporary fire, but it will be marred. The final, two, the final two will certainly be burned up. Paul's words then are a metaphor, not for condemnation, but for purification. The term molt is a good description of what will occur at this judgment. To molt means to penalize by fining or demanding forfeiture. The things we could have enjoyed in our eternal state will be lessened if our works don't pass the muster. If they do, we will receive our reward for them. In the end, all will be completely satisfied with the results because they will be based on the choices we made. There will be no impartiality nor unfairness in what occurs. Before I go on, today I was talking with a friend, okay? And he said that he went out and he got a giant print Bible. This is a big print Bible. I've got one at home, which is a giant print Bible, super giant. It's like this big. I mean, I can open it and I almost don't need my glasses to read this. It's great. And open it up and it shines. I get my suntan from it. Anyway, um, so he bought one of these and he says, I read the book of Ephesians. It took me about five minutes. He says, why didn't I do that before? And I said, because it's a part of something that is huge. And people get scared of huge. I told him, here was my example for him. I said, if I said to myself, I am going to write a commentary on the book of Hebrews, it would never get done, ever, because it's too much. It's 303 verses and it's complicated, right? I would never do it. But if I say, I'm going to write a commentary on verse by verse of the book of Hebrews, which I do every morning at four o'clock, guess what? It's going to get done one bite at a time. We don't have to be intimidated by this book. We have to say, I want to know what God says. And we've got all of these other options. We've got the audio Bible. We've got this. We've got, you know, people giving sermons on particular books. And I want to hear that, you know, whatever. We've got the options, but don't let the big scare you away from the details. Get into it and just start reading it. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. You take one bite to eat an entire elephant. That's exactly one bite at a time. That is exactly right. Okay. So, because it's a really big animal. Yeah, it's a really big, and they're tasty too. I'm telling you what, those elephants are, oh yes. Look, we had the elephant barbecue at the house last year, remember? Come on. Okay, so, uh, yeah, would make it through temporary fire, but it will be marred. The final two will be burned up. Okay, so, and I said that, um, and uh, Paul's words are then a metaphor, not for condemnation, but, oh, I read that. Okay, there will be no impartiality. There'll be no unfairness in what occurs. Whatever cannot withstand the judgment will certainly be burned away. However, despite this scary sentiment, Paul next gives words of a most blessed assurance. Each person will be judged and face whatever losses do, but Paul says he himself will be saved, yet as so through fire. The meaning of this is perfectly clear, and only someone with a perverse agenda could come to any other conclusion that this is a judgment solely for rewards and losses 
not for condemnation. Sorry, guys. He himself will be saved, Paul says. The immense grace and mercy of Christ means that even a person who has done absolutely nothing for him after salvation will continue on in his saved state forever. Okay? However, he will bear the sadness of having lived a life which could have done so much more. He will be saved as through fire. When one is pulled alive from a burning house, they may bear the pains of the ordeal, the smell of the ordeal, and the sad memories of it as well. But they will be saved. Life application and we are done. The wise soul will take 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15 to heart and will endeavor to work for eternal rewards, putting aside that which is earthly, temporary, and destined to perish the smell of the smoke at the judgment for such an ill-used life may linger for all eternity. Okay? You don't want that. So, let's go ahead and... You know what? I said something I told Laura at Mission Work a couple weeks ago, and I failed to say it. I said um, that uh, we have something coming up, and I said it's going to be in chapter 16 of Numbers, because I'm typing these sermons. It's going to be in chapter 14 of Numbers. It's going to be in the final... Uh, not this week, but next week's sermon. And I felt so bad about that. When I got home, I was so tired, you know, and I'm thinking, and I say that something is in the wrong chapter, and here I've already typed a sermon, but I've got 10 sermons in my head all at one time. I've got the one that I typed last week and nine more before that waiting to be given, and I'm always referring to them. Boy, but I hate doing that. I hate making mistakes like that. So I apologize what we were talking about three weeks ago. If you still remember whatever it was, it's in chapter 14. Anyway, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this book. Oh, what a treasure it is. And thank you for the sure promise we have in Christ. Even if our doctrine is faulty, as long as it's not heretical, you have accepted us. And we thank you for that. And help us not to say things which are wrong. Help us to study, to show ourselves approved, and to understand your word in context and as you would intend for us to do so. And this isn't just me asking this. I know this is on the hearts of everybody that's listening right now. We want to know your word, and that's why we're here at a Bible studies, because we truly want to know your word. So keep us away from false teachers, and if I'm saying something that's wrong, keep their ears shut when I say it. And Lord, let us just be a, a gift of love to you with our lives. And we love you, and we do praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.